The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. You know, last week I shared uh, about Lilo and Stitch. And Coco is a, another Disney movie about family. It's actually interesting how just about every Disney plot revolves around family, no matter what the stated plot may be. And this movie, Coco, begins with a father named Ernesto de la Cruz. He's a musician who dreamt of one day playing for the world as his audience. And chasing that dream, he ends up abandoning his wife, and his young daughter. And he eventually becomes the most famous musician in all of Mexico. And the jilted mother uh, ends up learning how to make shoes so that she can take care of her daughter and provide for the family. And that business continues to grow one generation after another. Ernesto's daughter is known as Mama Coco, And in her old age, she becomes the matriarch of the family. And her great-grandson, Miguel, loves music and dreams of one day becoming a great musician like his great-great-grandfather, Ernesto. But Miguel has to keep this dream a secret because on that day that Ernesto abandoned the family, His wife swore that her family would have nothing to do with music ever in any generation. Music was essentially outlawed, banished in this family. Well, Miguel refuses to accept his fate to become a shoemaker like everyone else in the family. So one day he sneaks into the shrine that is made in honor of his great-great-grandfather, Ernesto, and he steals Ernesto's guitar that is hanging up there on the display. And he strums the guitar, and in doing so, he is magically transported into the land of the dead. And there he he encounters a lot of his deceased relatives, and he ends up uncovering a lot of family secrets that he never knew before. Miguel eventually is united with Ernesto. And to his shock, he realizes that Ernesto is not the hero or even the great-great-grandfather that he thought he was. And Miguel nervously asks Ernesto, did you ever regret, did you ever regret it, choosing music over everything else? leaving your family. And to his disappointment, Ernesto replies with no remorse or regret at all for his choice of abandoning the family. And he says to Miguel, you can't deny who you were meant to be. We are artists. We cannot belong to one family. The world is our family. And Miguel is crushed. Miguel, in that journey into the land of the dead, discovers so much of what he has been told about his family was actually a lie, and that there are so many secrets to 
to uncover. And I wonder how many of us have been on a similar journey in life. As a young child, all you know is that your family is great. Your family is awesome. It's perfect, right? But as you grow older, you discover some uncomfortable and embarrassing secrets that no one in the extended family likes to talk about. Mistakes, or the truth is far worse than mistakes, made by relatives in the past that have brought shame to the family. Things spoken only in whispers. And the impact of those decisions may still be felt by the extended family, even to this very day. Last week, we looked at the story of Joseph and how sins can be passed on from one generation to the next. Jacob grew up in a family where he was favored by his mother and his father favored his brother Esau. And so it's not surprising that Jacob modeled that same favoritism with his own children blatantly favoring Joseph above the other sons. And then later even Benjamin when he was born. And we saw what disastrous consequences that favoritism would have on his children. But then last week, we also saw how God was able to use even hurtful actions like the things that Joseph's brother did to him and to ultimately bring about healing for his family as well as saving so many lives from this great famine that ravaged the land. Genesis 50, verses 19 to 21, But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And, reassured, and he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. And as I pointed out last week, this is the heart of God to heal the brokenness in our families. And it's found throughout the Bible in story after story. You know, many of us are familiar with this Old Testament celebration known as the Year of Jubilee. But I think most of us have never recognized the connection between Jubilee and God's heart for families. It was very possible in those days of the Old Testament that a family could run into such financial distress that they would have to sell the family farm in order to survive. And that hardship could have very well been created by mismanagement or bad decisions made by a single relative. But what happens is that on the year of Jubilee, every 50 years, all of that land that was sold is returned to the original families. And in other words, Jubilee was God's way of declaring that the mistakes and failures of one generation would not forever condemn all future generations into debt and poverty. But it was as if every 50 years, God is saying, every family gets a fresh start. An opportunity to start over with a clean slate and wipe away all of the mistakes and failures that were made in the past. And so even when we look at this celebration of Jubilee, we see within it the heart that God has for families to care for them and give them hope 
beyond the mistakes and failures and sins that are made in a family line. But here is the question. How does God do that in our lives today? Because we're not living in the Old Testament. How does he gives, give families the hope of healing and a new start? Well, I would argue this. One of the main ways that God does this is through the church. There are many images that the Bible uses to describe the church as a body, as a building, or as a temple, or even as the bride of Jesus. But the most significant and the most reoccurring and important image of the church is of a family, a family. Matthew chapter 12, verse 47 to 50 says, Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to, the, to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, Paul writes, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Romans 8, 29, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 to 20. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the church cornerstone. This is just a small sampling of the plethora of messages in the New Testament that talks about the church as a family. You know, we often talk about family churches, and I think ICC is kind of labeled as a family church in the Chicagoland area, which usually means simply that most of the members in the church are married with children. And some churches we even talk about as emphasizing, quote, family ministry. And that usually means that that church will cater to the special needs of families, so we have adult ministry and then youth group and then children's ministry. And then even on top of that, if the church is sophisticated enough, there are parenting and marriage enrichment seminars and things like that. And out of that, that is what is known as family ministry. And these ministries are important, but the Bible's teaching on the connection between church and family is actually so much deeper than that. Because the emphasis of the New Testament isn't that the church needs to be pro-family, but that the church itself is a family. That is the truth of the scriptures. And this means that whatever dysfunction or brokenness we have experienced in our own families biologically, God has given us the church so that through it, we can experience what it actually means to be a part of a healthy family. That is God's design and intention for church. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1-2 to says, Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. The New Testament is filled with language like this of treating one another as fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters and children. Russell Moore in the Storm Tossed Family writes, The church is not a collection of families. 
The church is a family. We are not, quote, family friendly. We are family. We learn the skills within the church to be godly sons or daughters, brothers or sisters, husbands or wives, fathers or mothers. And the reverse is also true. We learn dynamics within the family that we then live out within the church. So what Moore is saying is that the church basically provides for us a new family through which what it actually means to relate to each other like family. But the problem is this. Inasmuch as the church is intended to heal us from the brokenness of our family of origin, we also know that it goes the other way too, doesn't it? Is that we can bring the brokenness into the church and end up causing a lot of trouble in the church. It has to go two ways there. There has to be work done both ways. Russell Moore continues, Unmarried Christians often feel as though they are deficient, which would mean that our religion itself is deficient, since Jesus himself never married. Even more than that, our churches too often mirror the loneliness of the outside world. We assume that the nuclear family can meet this need for connection, and yet some of the loneliest, most isolated people in our communities are married with children, often so frenetically busy with child-rearing and or caring for aging parents that they have lost touch with old friends and no longer know how to make new ones. I know Betty and I went through that experience. When your kids are little and you're trying to do everything you can to bathe a kid and then walk, you know, get them fed and then get them to bed, and we had five kids, and so it was insane for us and a decade goes by when your only focus is your family and you just look up one day and say we don't have any friends (laughs) We, we don't ever go out we have no social life our family is our world our family is our life and anyone who has a family knows family is great family is wonderful marriage is great but it cannot solve all of your needs for connection for intimacy for fellowship we need the church to play a deeper role for that kind of community that every single one of us needs. Peter Schizero in The Emotionally Healthy Church writes, the New Testament world is unable to imagine living out healthy family life apart from the context of a healthy church life. The local church becomes the place where I am in a very real sense reparented. We all come into the family of Jesus with broken bones, wounds, and legs shot up in the war of life. God's intention is to heal our brokenness and patch up our wounds. Discipleship, then, must include honest reflection on the positive and negative impact of my family of origin, as well as other major influences in my life. This is hard work. As Schizero points out, each of us needs to do this hard work of exploring our past through the help of God, identifying the ways that our upbringing has impacted not only ourselves, but our family, our church, all the people that mean anything to us. How are they being hurt by that legacy of the family that I grew up in and its continued impact on my life as an adult? And that is not something that we can do alone by ourselves. It has to be done in community with others. In other words, when a church is healthy and functioning like a true family that God intended it to be, it means that through our church relationships, we are essentially being reparented to become the people that God desires. Let me just share one story of how this looks. 
You know, I come from a Korean family, but my parents were a bit unusual as Koreans. In Korean culture, everything is about the male firstborn, right? The firstborn son. It's kind of treated like a king in Korean culture, you know? Primogenitor, you know? And so uh, my parents hated that aspect of Asian culture. And my brother and I were only 15 months apart. And so they raised us not so that they didn't make me kind of bow to him as the older brother, but they wanted us to be friends, so they encouraged that. So they never highlighted at all that he was the older and I was the younger. So we essentially grew up like twins, almost like best friends. And I really appreciated that, you know. But here was the darker side of that. Was I realized that by the time that I got to high school, I was actually physically stronger than my brother. And in some sports, actually dominated him. And as a result of that, there was a nasty side that began to come out in me. And I realized, like, when we would play tennis, I, would, I didn't even know I was doing this, but I would belittle him and tease him and make fun of him. And there were other ways that I would just try. I don't know why. I, I can't even figure it out to this day. Why I would always try to cut him down a notch. And here was the thing was my parents never said anything to me about it. And here's the other thing is my brother is such a nice guy. He never said anything. He's just the happy, go lucky guy. So here I'm making fun of him. He's going, ah, he just kind of like laughs it off. It took a fellow Christian in college who saw that behavior in me and called me out on it and said, do you know you're pretty arrogant and you're pretty nasty to your brother? Why do you treat him like that? And when he first said that, I got so offended. I said, who are you to talk about my family? You don't know the special relationship I have with them. I can joke with them like that. We have an understanding with each other. But that comment stuck in my head for like weeks. And I thought about it. And the more I thought about it, I realized I do do that. I do do that to him. I don't know why, but for some reason, I always have to cut him down and make fun of him and belittle him. I was being reparented by a brother in Christ in a way that I was never parented in my family of origin. And this is one of the beauties of the church when it is functioning well, the way that it can work in our life. Well, for the message today, I basically just want to outline for you three hallmarks of what healthy church families look like and contrasting them with often the dysfunction that exists in many households in our world. The first is simply this. A healthy church family spends time together. They just spend time together. One of the hallmarks of a dysfunctional family is that although they may be physically together in one house, uh, everything is isolated in their own, everyone is isolated in their own world. Okay, do we have that slide, actually? Maybe I didn't put it. Okay, yeah, that one. Yeah. Um, you know, in a dysfunctional family, you're together, but you're really not together. And maybe this is the kind of house that you grew up in. Everyone is busy doing their own thing. You're all living under one roof, but the truth is there's no meaningful connection at all. No one really talks to each other. In fact, as the kids grow older, everyone just eats meals at their separate time. There's no family dinners anymore. And maybe the truth is, this is not just your family of origin. This is what your family right now looks like under your leadership. One of the most 
foundational hallmarks of a healthy family is that they spend quality time with each other. Look at the description of the early church in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe in the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in the homes, in their homes, and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people and the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved so the picture that we're given of these first believers is basically every day they gathered to see one another and to sit under the apostles teaching and have fellowship and break bread with each other over meals and helping each other out in any way that they had need Hebrews chapter 3 verse 12 to 13 says see to it brothers and sisters that none of you has a sinful unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. As the writer of Hebrews urges Christians to help one another out from falling away from the faith, there is this built-in assumption or expectation that they are daily connecting with each other in order to do that work of encouragement to one another's faith. In other words, what I'm saying is this. None of the other aspects of a healthy family are even possible if we don't make the basic commitment to spend time with one another. And my worry is this, that for too many Christians, church is not a community, it is an event. It is two hours on a Sunday, and that's it. You know, life in America is undeniably super busy. And this level of deep community within a church that we see in the book of Acts seems like an absurd and impossible ideal. Like, that's ridiculous. No one in modern America could live out church like that. And maybe so. I'll grant you that. But I think the truth is this, that we often hide behind our busyness when in truth there are deeper issues for why we avoid the experience of real community. And so you end up just sort of floating from church to church with superficial connections and never really planting roots into the community behind what that church represents. You know, to me, one of the amazing things is actually how many people have started to come to ICC in the midst of this pandemic, and it it just blows me away. And, you know, there's quite a few of you sitting in the sanctuary today are like that, and I think that's an awesome and amazing thing. And I, but I've told some of you newcomers here to ICC that I feel so bad for you because your experience of ICC is a video stream on YouTube and then this at best, you know? And I, I don't know how to tell you, but this is not ICC in its fullness, right? There's an in, entire life to our community that you just haven't even been able to glimpse yet because of all of the restrictions of the pandemic. One of the things that I miss the most are actually the fellowship times after our Sunday services, lingering for well, off, quite often well over an hour over a meal and catching up and talking with one another. I've had so many deep conversations with so many of you over that fellowship hour that we have. In fact, I think that fellowship hour is one of the unique aspects of ICC. 
is there aren't a lot of churches that do that, you know, where we basically just linger for over an hour and just sit there and chat with each other and talk after service is done. You know, this pandemic has had an undeniably negative impact on our ability to experience meaningful community with one another. But I want to say this. As more and more of us get vaccinated, and right now the entire staff at ICC has been vaccinated, um, but now Illinois has opened it up, right, to pretty much any adult who wants the vaccine. Um, I want to challenge you that I think this summer is going to be really important for us because as I've counseled a number of you, I'm hearing a common theme here, which is that COVID has put us in a certain rut of isolation where it's become really hard for us to be motivated enough to get out of the house and to get back into community. And the truth is every Sunday it's kind of a struggle because I could stay in my pajamas and turn on the TV or we could get a dress, get the kids all bundled up and head out the door. And I just want to encourage you, okay? We have to fight for this. I want to assure you that as a staff, we have done everything we can not to be irresponsible about this pandemic. Every week when we meet as staff, we, we pour over the data about percent positivity and hospitalization rates and emergence of these variants. And we have these long, long discussions about COVID every week. And we say, out of all of this, is it still safe for us to meet? So I want you to know that on our end, we're trying our best not to take this pandemic lightly. And yet, we also have to wrestle with the fact that our lives cannot be contr completely controlled by this fear of this pandemic and this fear, and that there is a cost to non-community and staying home by ourselves. And so this summer, as we've already been announcing, we're trying these new summer small group formats, you know, and we're trying some other fellowship activities, and we're trying to organize these things, and we can set the table, but you need to come. And we want to encourage you to really wrestle with that in your own heart. It is so easy to stay in isolation in your homes and just fall off the radar and just live a comfortable life with no drama, with just you and your family. But that is not the life that God intended for us. I am urging every one of us to fight for the community that is the life breath of the church that we need. The second is simply this, that a healthy church family demonstrates intimacy and care for one another. You know, members of dysfunctional families aren't very good at communicating intimacy or caring for the needs of others. That feels too vulnerable, too risky to have any serious level of affection and intimacy with other family members. And what's so sad about dysfunctional families like that is those are the people who are the most desperately in need for that expression of genuine affirmation and love. And the New Testament is filled with these interesting commands to greet one another with a kiss. 1 Thessalonians 5, 25 to 26, brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. 1 Corinthians 6, 20, all the brothers and sisters, see the repeated family language here? Here, send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. 1 Peter 5, 14, greet one another with a kiss of love. So starting today at ICC, we're going to kiss one another. 
No, I'm not, I'm not saying, I heard that, I heard that, so some kid is listening there, okay. Uh, there are basically three men that I've kissed in my life, I realized, and it's my father, and it's my two boys, actually when they were younger, because <laughs> now that they're older, I don't think they want to be kissed by me. Um, I try to remember if I've kissed my brother. <laughs> And maybe in joking, but I don't think as a, as a genuine expression of affection. I'm, I'm talking about not just for fun or goofing around. I'm talking about kissing as an expression of affection. It's my father and then Luke and Judah. And what do they have all in common? They're all three family. They're family. Now, this command to greet one another with a kiss may have been cultural in those days, but it was also even in that time an expression of great affection and intimacy. As Christians, in other words, what the apostles were teaching the church is treat each other like real family, like it really is family. And that means opening up your heart to one another like family. Luke records Paul's farewell to the leaders at the church in Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, verse 36 to 37. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. It's moving to me how freely these men are expressing their tears and their feelings for each other in this really emotional goodbye to Paul. And I think this is just one of so many examples in the New Testament of the early church expressing this type of amazing intimacy and love expressed so openly and vulnerably with each other. You know, while covering wars all over the world, the news correspondent Tim Hetherington was struck by something he never expected to realize about war. And that was how he saw soldiers expressing so much emotion and affection so openly with each other. He'd never seen young men ever do this anywhere. And he wrote once, only in war is it possible for men to demonstrate their love for one another. Only in war is this possible for men to hug each other and cry with each other and laugh like that. It's sad, isn't it, that it takes an extreme situation like war to enable grown men to open themselves up emotionally to one another without it feeling like it threatens their masculinity. You know, it's interesting. Studies have shown that when veterans return from war, it's not just the PTSD, which is always what takes the attention, that causes so much depression and suicide among these veterans. What they discovered was what they missed as much was the camaraderie and the community that they had with their fellow soldiers. And suddenly, all of that is taken away in civilian life. And that was one of the great sources of all the troubles that these veterans experience. And I think the truth is the church needs to grow in this area as well. Frederick Buechner, in Listening to Your Life, writes, the church often bears an uncomfortable resemblance to the dysfunctional family. There is the outward camaraderie and inward loneliness of the congregation. What an indictment, huh? Outward camaraderie, but inward loneliness. Now, I, I know in this age of COVID, <laughs> 
the thought of kissing and hugging each other, we're, we're just even trying to get to the place where we can do fist bumps again, right? Everything is air high fives and everything like that. I mean, that idea of physical contact, that's my, one of my big worries. It's coming out of COVID. The idea of physical contact with anyone is going to seem horrifying to many of us. And I'm not necessarily saying we have to take this command literally, but my prayer that is that we will commit ourselves to taking more risks and opening our heart to each other in more vulnerable and intimate relationships in the church. In other words, putting off our mask and letting down our guard and experiencing the intimacy and affection that God desires among his people. First Timothy 5, 1 to 2, it says, do not, we looked at this earlier, do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. I want to highlight that last part, with absolute purity. Especially in the wake of this Me Too movement, and not just the Me Too movement, but frankly, what's been happening in these scandal after scandal in the church itself with leaders falling to sexual sin. I think right now things are so fragile in this relationship between men and women. And right now it seems like the only answer is just stay away, right? Draw clear boundaries and it's, everything's about no, no, no. But that can't be the full answer. Somehow the church has to show the way to what healthy opposite-sex relationships look like, where it doesn't always have to be, have this sexual tension. But that I could, as a guy, treat a woman like a genuine sister in Christ, and there doesn't have to be any weirdness that if I express any kind of care for you, that that represents something uncomfortable or abnormal. This is the purity that the church needs to represent in this world. And it extends beyond just words of affection and love. It also involves helping each other in our times of need. James chapter 2, verse 15 to 16. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In other words, what James is saying is, if we are a true family then it has to mean more than offering just words of sympathy. But we have to be there when someone is hurting and take action to help them in their time of need. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Now, I want to say this. I'm going to guess that most of you have heard at least one talk on the theology of work. But did you ever hear this teaching before? <laughs> that one of the primary reasons to have a livelihood is so that with that money, you will have something to give to others who are in need? That is one of the main reasons why you work, is so that you have something to share with those brothers and sisters in Christ who are struggling. And we saw that in display here at ICC with that benevolence fund and was so encouraged by many of you who gave generously so that those who have been laid off or furloughed during this pandemic were able to receive some gifts from the church. See that in the pantry ministry that Pastor Lester just shared about and the way that we're giving back to this community. And I just want to continue to encourage us as a church to exercise that muscle of really offering whatever we can for the benefit of others so that in our wealth, they could be cared for and experience the love of God. 
And this isn't limited only to material help. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 to 2 says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Notice again that Paul is using family language, brothers and sisters. And then he says, listen, when a person sins, the greatest temptation is to judge them and to condemn them for their failure. But what Paul says is, instead, you take that burden upon yourself. You make their problem your problem and help restore that person back to spiritual health rather than judging them and condemning them. The last thing that I want to point out, and I'll end with this, is in a healthy church family, we help one another to grow. In a dysfunctional family, failures and mistakes are often brought up in a spirit of judgment and condemnation. The criticism is rarely constructive, but done in a way to tear someone down. And it often comes from a spirit of disappointment and anger. And those who grow up in this kind of dysfunctional family grow up usually harboring a lot of insecurities and distrust of others seeing any attempts to help or correct them as personal attacks against them. For others, the insecurities may not be simply from attacks, but maybe even from neglect. You were just never valued, never noticed, never cared for. And so the truth is, as an adult, you're unsure whether you really matter to anyone. Because, frankly, when you were growing up, as far as you could tell, You didn't really matter to your family. But unlike dysfunctional families, the church ought to be a family where you matter because you matter to God. And the guidance and the correction given to you in the church should come not from a place of judgment, but of genuine love and concern for your spiritual growth. And here's the key point that I want to make is this. That work of correcting and guiding and counseling and sometimes even rebuking should not be the exclusive ministry of the pastors in a church. That is a responsibility that God lays on every believer in the household of God. You don't believe me? Look at this, Romans 15, verse 14. I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, again, family language, household language, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. Hear Paul's heart for the church? He's saying, listen, you have the ability to do this to one another, helping each other out to grow spiritually. And that's what ought to be done in the church. Titus chapter 2, verse 3 to 4. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children. In other words, Paul expects the older women in the church to be able to help the younger women in their spiritual growth. And it's because they are further along in their stage of life, not only can they speak out of their knowledge of God's word, but also from their life experience. And so he says, from older to younger, let there be some kind of mentoring happening in the church where those who have that life experience can really speak into those who are younger. That's what a healthy church 
looks like. Frank Viola writes in Reimagining Church, but here's the tragedy. Because so many of us have been conditioned in the institutional church, we have been forced to sit in a pew and passively listen to sermon. See? <laughs> I'm indicting myself here right now, right? Passively listening to sermons week after week. And that's why scores of Christians associate church with an audience that hears a weekly oration. The result? Scores of spiritual fathers are not doing what they should be doing. Many of them have confessed to me that they see no place for their contribution in the traditional church. They feel that their long spiritual history with the Lord and the lessons they learn from it will die with them. Many feel that their spiritual experience, experiences are being wasted. And what a sad commentary on the church. It cannot be up to one person to do all the teaching and all the counseling and all the guidance. A church cannot, if I'm the bottleneck to the spiritual growth in the church, then we're already dead. You know, we're lost. The picture of a healthy church is that there are all of these kind of relationships happening. In other words, we all have a role to play. And this speaks to the intergenerational ministry that ought to be going on in every healthy church. Older men speaking into younger men's lives. Older women speaking to younger women's lives. Youth helping children out. My participating in the parenting of your children, even though they're biologically not my kids, I as an adult take an interest in your child and want to do what I can to help that child meet the Lord and walk with them. This is what a healthy church looks like. And this is one of the things that we long to see because as a pastor of this church, I will be the first to admit we are not there yet as a church. ICC is not there yet. But I long to see us get there one day. And that means every one of us has to do our part. We're creating these summer groups and we hope that you will participate in that and just get together with two or three other families with maybe kids that are of similar age and get together and begin to spend time together and grow deeper in connection with each other during the summer. We also have a journey groups program that's already midway right now. And so it's not something you could sign up for right now, but where you get together with two other people and explore the spiritual disciplines as you journal together and share with each other and pray for one another. But this can even happen organically as you just form natural friendships in the church and begin to spend time with one another and get to know each other and care for each other. Another thing that I really want to challenge you with is this. During this whole COVID pandemic, we have just been in a skeleton crew mode of just streamlining everything and really asking almost nothing of any of you in terms of serving. And the truth is, I'll be the first one that says it is, uh, our staff has really been overworked during this pandemic, okay? Um, a lot of them are working well beyond the number of hours that they've been con contracted to work. And it's okay. I'm not trying to put a guilt trip. Uh, I guess I am a little. <laughs> I'm not trying to put too much of a guilt trip here because that was just the nature of the pandemic. We we're just isolated, and so we just can't do anything. But like I said, I think we need to start to see this summer as a time when we emerge out of this mentality of just holding ourselves up in our house. And there, the truth is, as we begin to do this stuff of gathering like this and holding these worships, we need ushers. We need people on the welcoming team. We need greeters. We need people who can help out on the arts and media team with our website and with 
the booth back there and, you know, just come here on a Sunday and watch as Peter and Lester run around like chickens with their heads cut off, just trying to do like 10 different things. And it's just insane. And I'm asking you, we need to start all pitching in and doing what we can to help this church move forward as a ministry as we think about the light at the end of the tunnel of this pandemic and hopefully start emerging from it. Another thing that I want to request of you is even the letter that went out from Kim about the children's ministry. We just are asking you to put in a couple-week block. And even after that call, truth is only a couple parents have volunteered. And all the slots largely have remained empty. And so the truth is right now, we're not in a footing to be able to start up a children's ministry again. We just don't have the volunteers who are able to do it. And I'm asking you that if you would wrestle with that and consider what does it mean for me to really embrace ICC as the community of my people, my family, my church, where I want to grow and serve and learn. Let me just close with this final thing and then we'll wrap up here. It's about my journey group experience here. Our journey group program launched in 2016. And during that pilot program, I signed up for it as well. And so I joined one of the triads in the journey group. And that's my journey group triad. It's Charlie and Charlie Chen and uh, Will Kim. Um, I didn't even know them when journey group started really very well. They just had two and they said they needed a third. So I just became the third and joined their triad. But over those two weeks, those two, every two-week meetings over the next year and a half, uh, really something amazing. I think first they were a bit nervous because they go, oh, great, we're doing journey groups with the pastor. You know? And it's, it's like now we have to be on all the time. You know? And I think they were a little bit apprehensive about it. But we just decided to meet at Charlie's house. And we said, let's just meet at 7 o'clock after work for dinner. And we just rotated each of us bringing dinner to his house. And we just started going through the journey group stuff. And our meetings went on for a minimum of five hours every time we met. I think the earliest we ever got out was midnight. Because once we started sharing our life together, um, it just like flowed like a waterfall as we just began to share what we were struggling with and what we are going through. It was funny because I'm the pastor, but sometimes I'm trying to get the hidden, like, you know, like, so let's wrap up, and it's getting kind of late. And then they just want to keep going, and I felt bad. I'm the pastor, but I'm the one that's always trying to cut the meeting short or something. Um, but over the year and a half, we grew incredibly close with one another. It's kind of sad, but neither of them are at ICC anymore for various circumstances and reasons. Will has actually found his dream job, being an accountant at Nike in Portland, Oregon. These are shoes that he sent me. I wore them today specially because to, he keeps sending me shoes. And I'm not really a sneakers guy, but I like them. You know? <laughs> My kids think I look more hip once I wear his shoes, not the ones I buy. We just had dinner to celebrate Charlie's birthday this, this Friday. Went out, My Betty and I went out with Charlie and his wife, Inko. Our dinner went on for four hours, and that's the earliest we've ever ended. Because the last time we went out, I think our dinner went almost six hours long. And we just share and we talk. And we talk about the things of God. 
and share about our burdens for the church. And this is a friendship that I think I'm going to hold for the rest of my life. And it's simply because every couple weeks, we gather together to share our lives. And in simply putting the investment of that time into each other, something God created that feels now like an unbreakable chain between us three. I actually made dog tags for us. This is our final journey group meeting. It's a journey on celebration. And we did it by going to a Roman bath in the city. So we did a public bath together as a way of finishing our time. Real bonding there, right? Real bonding. And we're all wearing our dog tags that I made, which look like military tags, and it simply says, journeying together. And that's my hope for us as the church, is that we would be able to be that type of person for one another, to be a real family knitted together under the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. We're going to come to the table here in just a minute, but I want to offer you just a moment to come before the Lord in prayer. Um, thinking about what Beekner said about this outward camaraderie, but this inward loneliness that I think sadly characterizes too many people in the church. But I think what Christ's heart for each one of us is to know the depth of real meaningful, life-giving relationship with each other. But in order for us to experience that, there needs to be a surrender of all of our insecurities, all of our mask wearing, all of our fears of rejection, and all those other anxieties that plague us that maybe come from being raised in a dysfunctional family where you weren't really parented maybe in the most healthy of ways. And maybe the church is God's gift to you to be reparented in a way to understand his love for you by the love that we share with one another. That is my sincere prayer for our church. And so would you just come before the Lord in just a brief moment of prayer and say, God, maybe you could say that as a prayer of surrender and say, I long for that. But God, the truth is I've never experienced that in any of the churches I've attended. And my heart aches because I've heard these messages before about the beauty of community in the church. But the truth is much of my journey has been feelings of pain and isolation and brokenness. My prayer for you is that you wouldn't give up hope in experiencing that true community. That you would lay that before the Lord and say, God, what is the surrender that needs to happen in my life for me to experience relationships like that? I see the shadow of my brokenness often chasing me and causing me to undermine relationships in my life. And the way I treat people, the way that I look at people and view them, but God, I just want total surrender before you.